0: everybody it's steve the rogue scholar um folks you ever felt like every time you do this stuff you're like deciding to take a sip of cyanide small bit of cyanide or something like that it's killing your soul and killing your spirit and everything else well that's what it feels like every time i look at the views of people spewing economic illiteracy and worse, when I go in to look at the comments and I see friends of mine in there, oh, we love you. It disgusts me. It disgusts me. And, you know, watching people watch these shitty hosts that know the petrodollar, isn't a, it, it, it's not the thing. And yet they push it out there, death and doom and destruction. And I look and there's 274,000 views. I look and I see some view in there. Devastating, devastating. It means I'll get maybe six or 700 views in the end. 274,000 views of trash, complete and utter trash. But you know what? Somebody found it interesting enough to go over there and watch. We love you. Such a shame. I look at my son and I say, I tried, man. I fucking tried, dude. I am so sorry. I thought we had an army of people that understood this stuff and weren't going to sit there and roll over when they see their favorite YouTube hosts say stupid shit. But damn it, I was wrong. I'm really sorry I failed you. That's how I feel. That's exactly how I feel. And, you know, maybe you all don't take it as seriously or maybe you do take it as seriously. I don't know who I'm talking to. You know, you all, whoever you are watching right now, thank you for watching. But. The people that do what I'm talking about, you know who you are. You know you sit there, it's Friday night. It's an opportunity to do the right thing. You do the wrong thing. You watch trash. You share it around. You give it air cover. You make them feel special by telling them how much you love them. And bam It's like I may as well be screaming into a pillow. So, neither here nor there. We're going to go through some discussion points today because there's been a lot of stuff going on with Credit Suisse and being acquired. I'm not going to really focus on Credit Suisse. It's still fresh. I'm going to let that marinate for a bit. I don't, I'm, I'm not really worried about having a hot take. I would rather have the right take than a hot take. I know some of you will rush to a channel that will give you a hot take and good for you. It must feel good to be in the know, even though you end up wrong at the end. But Damn it. You got there first, didn't you? Bravo well played buddy anyway so let's go ahead and pull this stuff in one of the things that i wanted to do rather than use my own words is i wanted to read the words of stephanie kelton and randall ray there's a bunch of stuff out there from nathan tankus about this as well regarding the uh silicon valley bank now we've talked about this a number of times because it's important It's not just a matter of, please give me the answer so I don't have to learn this stuff. I don't need to have an analytical mind to understand any of this stuff. Just tell me what I need to know and then let me run on my way. That's not going to get it done. because As the news comes out as your favorite shit tube host starts preaching petrodollars and other bullshit. If you don't have an analysis for how to break that down, you're lost. You're lost and you'll be part of the problem sharing that shit out. You'll be helping spread the disinformation. It's a community, baby, right? It's a community. Seems to be kind of the thing. I want to be part of the cool kids club. You know, see, the smart kids club, unfortunately, has some egg on its face because the smart kids club, while it's very smart, struggles with breaking things down for people that are eager to share shit shows about petrodollars and crap like that, okay? They struggle with bridging that divide. I've tried my ass off to fill that divide because I recognize the academics and others that are practitioners are way, way into the stratosphere with a lot of the readings they've done, a lot of the synthesis they've done. Plus they get paid. They get paid for a living to learn this stuff. And they get paid for So in other words, while you're 40 hours a week pushing paper from one side of your desk to the other, washing dishes, pumping gas, Filling, doing whatever it is you do for a living, right? They are busy reading tome after tome after tome, learning this stuff. And sometimes their, their explanations go into the esoteric meaning, very, very difficult to learn, very, very challenging to learn, pres- presuming a lot of prior information. And so when you read this stuff, when you watch this stuff, It's easy to get swept away in the bullshit it's easy to not know which sources to trust because well you didn't understand so-and-so's article so it must mean petrodollar end of the petrodollar it's blah 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 resist the quick fix resist the hot take and resist sharing shit that you can't understand okay resist because people i'm telling you right now I literally, I decided to look, and I don't do this very often because I usually try to stay far, far, far away from the idiots that post Petra dollar crap and so forth. But I sat there and I reviewed, went down through all these different YouTube channels that were putting the shit out there. Some of them multiple times with thousands, hundreds of thousands of views. Sometimes millions of views. Now, if you think about this, I think I've said it before, but for every 10 words of bullshit, it takes like 10,000 words to undo it. But as you can clearly tell, most people aren't in for 10,000 words. They're looking for a meme. They're looking for a TikTok. And they won't even blush sharing garbage. They won't even flinch. They're perfectly content as long as they're part of the herd. Now, mind you, they feel like they're breaking from the herd because they're, they're the anti-woke. They're going and hanging with people that are really focusing on the real issues. You know? But, but there is truth out there, and sometimes it's more challenging than a meme. And so this show endeavors to take the smart work of these really brilliant people and to boil it down for you and I, because I'm not brilliant. I just try really hard to not be stupid. I try really hard to be responsible with the types of stuff I share. I don't share MSNBC. I don't share all that shit. I don't share alt media that talks about the petrodollar and the end of the petrodollar. It's here. The end of the petrodollar is here. I don't do it. Don't want to be guilty of misleading people. If you're content misleading people, keep doing what you're doing. I'm sure that it will be the best. It's absolute trash. There you go. Yes, Richard. There it is. Trash. Absolute fucking trash, right? So (laughs) I love it. All right, let's go ahead and get to the reading here because this is where the meat and potatoes comes from. And we'll try our best if there's an area to explain if you have questions. And please, in the comments, don't be afraid to ask the question. I don't always look and I see super chats and there. problem with doing that is the stuff I'm talking about is deep and dense. And I'm sometimes worried. So maybe I need to get to the point where I start trying to look at the super chats for the end of the show and reading them off. Something like this. I want to give you guys props because we need the We need the support. We need the financial support. We definitely need your support here helping us get past Because We're up against guys that are, they can fart and you'll share it. I don't know why that is, but you know, I, I share fart videos, too. on a Jack Vale, crazy, funny guy, crazy, funny guy. All right. Anyway, so here we go. I'm going to go ahead and jump into the reading. So this is from Stephanie Kelton's, um, or newsletter called the lens and you'll notice this came out on march 18th it's the 20th so this has had an opportunity to bake over the weekend um i really do believe this is a really really powerful um really powerful uh whatever you want to call it uh, i think this is a powerful testimony if you will to the ability to read <laughs> and the ability to learn and the ability to know who the experts are and to listen to the correct people, not trash. Right. Right. All right. So here we go. Magical monetary thinking at the fed killed the Silicon Valley bank by Randall Ray and Stephanie Kelton. I'm going to read this verbatim because it's worth reading verbatim. Today's post is a joint effort written with my friend and former teacher colleague, Randy Ray. Randy was a student of Hyman Minsky and author of many books, including Why Minsky Matters. We were trading emails about the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank over the weekend, and I suggested that we team up and write something for readers of The Lens. So here it is. Before we can turn to the story about how the Federal Reserve helped blow up Silicon Valley Bank, let's take a step back. It really is just another case of history repeating itself in the early post-war era, Keynesian ideas dominated policymaking fiscal policy, what Congress and the treasury do was front and center focusing mostly on managing aggregate demand while monetary policy has been freed from wartime constraints by the treasury accord of 1951. In practice, the Federal Reserve played a mostly supportive role. Keynesians doubted that spending was sufficiently interest-sensitive to warrant assigning an important role to the Fed in demand management. In practice, the Fed kept the Fed funds rate between 1% and 3% for most of the decade, but it raised rates to about 3.5% and then 4% as the economy went into a double dip recession between 1958 and 1960. There's the dips. So let's spread that out for a second. So you can see that 1958 and 1960. Okay. So. By the mid-1960s, the Fed had taken rates above 5.5%, triggering the so-called credit crunch of 1966. Now, folks, just so you know, you'll see right here these red highlighted areas. These are all accessible in the link that I have up here. And guess what? If you go to the show notes, you'll find the links for all this there. So if you find yourself wondering where to find more information, She went to the trouble of providing you all these hotspots, these links to go do further research. And I recommend that you do that because it's better to be smart than dumb. All right. So as Minsky described it, by the end of August, the disorganization in the municipal markets, rumors about the solvency and liquidity of savings, institutions, and the frantic position-making efforts by money market banks generated what can be characterized as controlled panic. The situation clearly called for the Federal Reserve action. The Fed was forced to intervene as lender of last resort to rescue the municipal bond market, which in effect validated the very practices that had stretched the market liquidity. As a result of Fed intervention, confidence was restored and the economy continued to expand. Before long, new financial practices would emerge and be validated. Leverage ratios increased. Memories of the big one, the Great Depression, faded. And markets came to expect that big government and the Fed would come to the rescue as needed. After a brief U-turn, December 1966 to July 1967, to ease the credit crunch, the Fed embarked on an aggressive rate-hiking campaign that added 500 basis points of tightening between August 1967 and August 1969. It was a policy error that triggered another financial crisis, this time the commercial paper market. The rate hikes led to a default and then bankruptcy by Penn Central Railroad. In December 1969, the economy entered a recession. Although inflation briefly retreated, it returned and then accelerated following the first oil price shock in 1973. With inflation moving higher, the Fed again hiked aggressively, taking the Fed funds rate up by 850 basis points, July 1972, July 1974. Franklin National Bank, failed in october 1974 the biggest bank failure up to that time and the economy crashed into the deepest post-war recession up to that period ushering in the first the economy's first stagflation so here's the uh the graph of what they're describing right there and you could see the dip in 1972 starts back here right around 1970 okay Shoots up and then bam, back down here in 76. So, anyway, let's go back to our reading. As Minsky wrote, Hyman Minsky, that is Randall Ray's professor and a brilliant mind, he said, As Minsky wrote in Stabilizing an Unstable Economy, during 1974 1975, more banks failed and more assets were affected than in any other period since World War II. However, excuse me, moreover, the real estate investment trust, REIT industry, with some $20 billion in assets, experienced a severe run that led to many bankruptcies. In addition, 1975 was marked by the New York City's financial crisis, the failure of W.T. Grant and Company, the need for consolidated Edison to sell assets to New York State in order to meet payment commitments and the walking bankruptcy of Pan Am. Keynesianism fell out of favor largely because it offered no cure for the malaise. The inflation should be treated with fiscal austerity while the unemployment called for a dose of fiscal stimulus. The beginning of magical thinking. Let's take a pause for a minute. Let me just take a peekaboo. Uh, thank you, uh, Jesus, or Jesus, for the um. Uh, the, super, the super sticker, and thank you, Double K, for the super chat. Um, let's go through and We're going to get back to this. The beginning of magical thinking. As inflation picked up at the end of 1970s, the Fed embraced a new view, monetarism. Fiscal policy would focus on the deficit reduction, while the central bank would target the growth rate of the money supply. Monetarists argued that the Phillips curve tradeoff was illusory, How many of y'all know what the Phillips curve is? Let's go ahead and click on this just for grins. So if I go in here and look at this, we'll jump right back here. It says, you might've heard of the Phillips curve in recent years, or at least some talk about whether the low unemployment rate in the U.S. could lead to higher inflation. Understanding whether a relationship exists between these two variables, unemployment and inflation is important when it comes to monetary policy making. Why is that? that a reserve has a dual mandate to promote maximum sustainable employment and price stability. Maximum sustainable employment can be thought of as the highest level of employment the economy can sustain while keeping inflation stable and price stability can be thought of as low and stable inflation. So bottom line is, is that the idiocy, if you will, of the Phillips curve, which is standard monetarist thinking, says that we need to keep a bunch of people unemployed to keep the economy stable. That's the only way that this stuff will work. So that said, here let, let, let's let's do this real quick. Who owns the Fed? The Federal Reserve was created by Congress in 1913. The Federal Reserve sadly, has this weird stock, 6% stock, blah, blah, blah. People that don't know, don't read, listen to bad YouTube channels, think that that makes it private. Reality is, is that the Fed is an arm of the U.S. government. It's an agent of the U.S. government. It's a fiscal agent. It's a monetary agent. It's a bank made by Congress. The Federal Reserve Act of 1913 have the creature from Jekyll Isle. One of these days I'm going to burn it just because I'm so disgusted that people take it seriously. Disgusted, okay? Reality is, is that the Fed, if Congress wanted to rein it in, do whatever, audit it, do whatever it wants to do, change the policy, change the interest that they pay, change anything, Congress alone could do it. The Fed is the united states central bank just like the bank of england is the bank of england's central bank just like the bank of japan is the bank of japan's central bank just like the royal bank of australia is the same thing okay after a while you want to just absolutely bludgeon beaten destroy alex jones and all the paul bots that spread the stupid shit about the creature from jekyll isle destroying the brains of most americans okay just really truly want to just drop the elbow on them. Okay. But that said, that said there is part public and there's part private because money doesn't exist in the government sector. Okay. So I've called it an ingress meaning the inbound into the government sector and an egress into the private sector. It's kind of serves as the D mark. Like if you go to the side of your house and you look over at the network interface from your old telephone box, There's a little thing inside. You open up the NID, network interface device. You open it up. There's a little teeny RJ14 cord. You pull the RJ14 cord out. You can look into the house. That's the private side. That's your customer-provided equipment inside. You look the other way, you're back to the PSTN, otherwise the packet switch telephone or public switch telephone network. All right? That's the other side. So the Fed serves as a network interface device, like a phone company's network interface device, separating the outside from the inside. Unfortunately, people's brains break because truly disgraceful people have spread this thing about Rothschild's anti-Semitic, disgusting people, okay? Let's be fair, disgraceful people. We're not talking about good people, we're talking about evil people, okay? Now, don't get me wrong. I would purposely get rid of the Fed roll it into the treasury just to shut these fuckers up because it's not a big deal. The fed does some really shady shit, but guess what? Our government does shady shit. You elect a neoliberal for president. Guess what happens? Are they serving your needs? Should we end the presidency because they're not serving your needs? I don't think so. Maybe we should. I don't know, but it's neither here nor there because in the end of the day, if you split the Treasury with the Fed, the Treasury's spending surplus deficit matches this other side of the Fed, the Fed's deficit. So you have public and private mirroring one another because when the government spends money into existence, it's a deficit on the government side. It's an asset. It's a plus on the private side for you and I, where money matters. Now, mind you, because there's neoliberals in the presidency, because there's neoliberals being appointed to the Board of Governors and stuff at the Fed, what does the Fed end up doing? The Fed ends up doing neoliberal shit. Now, unless you're a worthless neoliberal, they're not doing anything for you. This is the problem. And so as long as it's been such a shitty failure, the way it's behaved, okay, it gives rise and air cover to some of the dumbest thoughts, the dumbest ideas known to mankind. And the conspiracy theories, the idiot stuff that the libertarians say, somehow or another magically appears to be rational, but it's not. And it doesn't take a whole lot of effort to see your entire government from the deep state And all the unelected officials that run this thing that have 50-year careers that have been more involved in policy throughout the time since World War II than your elected politicians are, okay? The conflation of the consultant rank writing lobbyist bills for Congress and congressional people not knowing how to even write a damn bill and suddenly proposing bills from lobbyists, that's a real thing. Do you want to end Congress too? Maybe we should. Maybe we should end the Senate for sure. But in the end, you got to recognize there's capture at all levels of our government. It does not serve our needs. And if you think you can vote your way to fixing that, there's a lot of childlike people out there that believe that. There's a lot of children out there that are over the age of 18, 50, 60, 70 years old, children-mindedness anyway, that believe they'll be able to vote their way out of that quagmire I just laid out. It doesn't change the fact that it doesn't really matter who owns the Fed because in the end, Fed was created by Congress. It's a creature. Every bank has a federal charter to exist. A bank that does not have a federal charter doesn't exist. So by definition, banks were public banks. Banks were public purpose banks. But because we allowed regulation to slip and fall, Banks became basically largely deregulated and they look nothing like a public bank. So you got two things you can do. I'm going to get back to the magical thinking here in a minute with Kelton. you got two things you can do. You can either A, create regulation and get the banks back to being boring again the way they were intended to be. That would require will and that would require actually having a Congress And a government that serves our needs the flip side to that is you can run around at the regional level and create public banks and hope to god that you can somehow or another make them solvent keep them solvent and have a parallel system next to this private system the private system is only private because we've allowed it to be deregulated the charter itself Allows banks to create money for loans and stuff like that because they were intended to be servicing the public need, the public purpose. Clearly, finance capital had a different idea. This is what happens in every area when capture comes through capturing the housing market, capturing commodities, capturing regulatory bodies, capturing unions. Look how many unions are supposed to serve their people, but the union leads are busy playing golf with the leaders of industry with the leaders of government and there's no there's no firewall between them <clears throat> anyway i'm going to get back to this but i just want to say pretty much most of the time when you hear somebody say something about the private federal reserve you can pretty much stop listening after they've said it it's, there's not much more to say all right here we go So the beginning of magical thinking as inflation picked up at the end of the 1970s, the fed embraced a new view. Monetarism fiscal policy would focus on deficit reduction while the central bank would target the growth rate of the money supply. Monetarists argued that the Phillips curve trade-off was illusory. There were natural rate of unemployment and the central bank could bring down inflation without pain by reducing the rate of growth of the money supply. This is where a lot of truly gross people these days, right wing, right wing. Hold on. Let's do it. Right wing. Okay. Right wing. Sig Heil, right wing people. Okay. Right wing people push this weird shit about quantity of money. Don't be that guy. Don't be that gal that repeats that stupid shit. Okay. So I've said this countless times, but let's pretend like this is a stack of, of, Money, big stack of money right here. What's that money doing to cause inflation? Nothing, not one damn thing. If I give all of this money in this little notepad to one person, one person's got a lot of money sitting there. They're not going to buy a million loaves of bread. They're not going to buy a million gallons of milk. They're not going to suddenly decide to buy you know, a million T-shirts. They're not going to suddenly get more teeth dent fixed at the dental uh, at a dentist office than they have in their mouth. No, they're gonna. There's a top demand that they can really exact. So if they spend all of it on those things, it's not going to create any kind of inflationary problems. What happens, however, if I give everyone a piece of that? Now everybody's pent up demand, all the things that they need to get teeth heart transplant uh you know a stent uh you know uh, go to a podiatrist go to the friggin butt doctor you know the the proctologist man whatever you know if everybody suddenly needs to have their colonoscopy at the same time there's going to be a run on colonoscopies and there's not going to be enough so that could create a shortage which could create demand pull inflation Okay, But unfortunately, these fuck sticks will sit there and tell you it's because of the amount of money. It's a distributional thing. First of all, right up front, the government itself is the price setter. It sets the price because it spends the first dollar into existence on whatever contracts it contracts out to. And then from that point on, Those people then pass on a portion of that money to their workers and then it starts getting stepped on like a drug dealer as it goes down, 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 down and it's finally returned as a tax, okay? Destroyed, by the way, not re-spent, not your hard-earned fucking tax dollars, sorry. All right, let's get back to the story here. So, as inflation, I'm going to read this again just because I did my little dive there. As inflation picked up at the end of the 1970s, the Fed embraced a new view, monetarism. Fiscal policy would focus on deficit reduction while the central bank would target the growth rate of the money supply. Monetarists argued that the Phillips curve trade-off was illusory, that there was a natural rate of unemployment and the central bank could bring down inflation without pain by reducing the rate of growth of the money supply. Again, this is your standard libertarian trash right there. That is libertarian trash, the most disgraceful, disgusting, useless, pathetic, evil-minded shit you've ever seen, okay? So in 1979, a new sheriff came to town, long, tall, Paul Volcker. This guy is a real piece of work. And guess who he was brought in by? Look at that date, 1979. You think that was Republican Gerald Ford? You think it was Republican Richard Nixon? No, it was the guy who you guys keep elevating as some God who's really the king of austerity, Jimmy fucking Carter. Thank you for building some houses, Jimmy, but your presidency was an unmitigated disaster. Okay? So in 1979, new sheriff come to town, Long Tall Paul Walker. Interest rates were raised to 17%, 17% in May of 1980, and then 19% in 1981. And once again, we experienced a financial crisis, one that spilled over into the rest of the world, along with a deep double dip recession. Look at this. This is what trash monetarist, libertarian monetary policy does. Now, if you're a speculator, if you're one of those investor-grade assholes that thinks it matters about your portfolio and all that other shit, this stuff is, oh, here's where we got to invest, man. Invest low, get high, whatever. This is the kind of shit that they celebrate. But if you're not one of the worthless ones, if you're somebody worthful and you're looking out for everybody and you're not trying to just make sure you get rich, this kind of shit will drive you fucking crazy, okay? He says, Minsky observed in 1982, a virtual epidemic of savings banks failed. And in mid-year, a spectacular bank failure, that of Penn Square in Oklahoma City, led to large losses at some of the citadels of American banking. Then, in mid-1982, the Mexican peso collapsed, and default on multi-billion dollar debts in a spate of Latin American countries seemed imminent. Two years later, in 1984, Continental Illinois Bank failed after a run on deposits. It was the biggest bank failure up to that point. The most severe financial crisis since the Great Depression wiped out half the thrifts in the United States, and the knock-on effects from the rate hikes hit developing country debt, putting all the big banks that were holding that debt underwater by the end of the decade. But unlike the tough love shown to the SNL savings and loans, the big banks were thrown various lifelines, lower interest rates, extend to pretend, banking supervisors didn't look closely at the books, hoping they wouldn't crater, and safe government debt that allowed the big banks to recover. Part of the reason for hesitancy to resolve insolvent banks was the understanding the FDIC could not possibly cover losses when the deposits of technically insolvent big banks the fslic insurer for the snls had already gone bankrupt coupled with the fact that congress was in no mood for a bailout look at that drop anyway volker's grand monetarist experiment letting go of interest rates and targeting the money supply to try to bring down inflation forever changed the banking industry the Jimmy Stewart savings and loan sector was allowed to recess in the distant memory of Christmas Pass. Banks started treating borrowers like one-night stands and loans like toxic waste, something to bundle up and quickly offload onto pension funds and other investors. Underwriting became passe. No need for regulations either, because securities will be rated by professionals. Bank regulation and supervision took a long vacation. The age of securitization had arrived. In 1987, Minsky wrote, that which can be securitized will be securitized. Securitization reflects a change in the weight of market and bank funding capabilities. Market funding capabilities have increased relative to the funding ability of banks and depository financial intermediaries. It is in part a lagged response to monetarism. The fighting of inflation by constraining monetary growth opened opportunities for non-banking financing techniques. The monetarist way of fighting inflation which preceded the 1979 practical monetarism of then Fed Reserve Chair Paul Volcker, puts banks at a competitive disadvantage in terms of the short-term growth of their ability to fund assets. The interest rates of the monetarist experiment destroyed the funding capabilities of the thrift industry in the United States by undermining the value of mortgages and thus impairing their net worth. The ability of the thrifts to create mortgages was unimpaired, even as their ability to fund holdings was greatly impaired. Although modern securitization may have begun with thrifts, it has now expanded well beyond the thrifts and mortgage loans. That was Hyman Minsky. So for policymakers, however, the Paul Volcker fiasco exposed a problem. Central banks can't control the money supply. Despite the carnage, the Fed never hit its money targets. And money supply growth isn't related to inflation. Money grew rapidly as inflation began to drop. What then should they target? Think about that. I mean, seriously, folks, don't you get disgusted by people that talk about the quantity of money and that they printed too much money and there's money overflowing the bathtub? It's bullshit. It's bullshit, but I bet you go to a certain, several YouTube channels. They'll talk to you about petrodollars. They'll talk to you about all kinds of nonsense and you'll share their shit. You may even give them a super chat. You might even like, and comment and give them extra help to get beyond the algorithms that you don't give smaller channels that are actually telling you the truth. That's a shame, isn't it? It's a real fucking shame. Anyway, enter the more magical thinking as Greenspan took the reins in 1987. Greenspan embraced the view that inflation is driven by expected inflation, not by observable economic phenomena. Let's target inflation expectations, which can be manipulated to control actual inflation. So here's a real mind fuck, isn't it? But we need some signal to communicate the Fed's intentions. The Fed henceforth would openly announce the Fed funds rate, believe it or not. The target was to keep, was kept top secret until 1994. And the Fed would use the Fed funds rate to indicate its intentions. Sure, we know spending isn't very sensitive to interest rates, but expectations are, and that's what matters. A rate hike will magically prevent inflation by creating the expectation. In other words, to believe, look, The belief, the belief that raising interest rates up will curb inflation, will curb inflation because you believe it will. It's the same as the worthless ones that say they're printing money. It's going to cause inflation. And what did every business do? They ran around and they gouged the fuck out of prices. Why? Because they knew a bunch of yuck yucks were going to run and go, they're printing money. It's causing inflation. They're printing money. Printing money. When do you stop? They're just going to print endless money. Useless, worthless. Comments. Rothschilds. Rothschilds. There, that was a wow, man! I haven't ripped off a Tom Arias scream in years. Woohoo! All right, back to the thing. Here we go. <laughs> God, I might, I might break Rothschilds back out for that one. All right. Sure, we know that spending isn't very sensitive to interest rates, but expectations are. And that's what matters. A rate hike will magically prevent inflation by creating the expectation that there will be no inflation. Believing that the Fed will prevent inflation will prevent inflation because you just believe it because it's institutionalized knowledge and shit. They said so, so you believe it, right? Just like they're printing money. It's going to cause inflation. And you believe it. And they know it. And so they gouge the living shit out of you because these shitty, well, let's do it live. Let's do it big. These shitty alt-media YouTube channels will sit there and say, hey, man, they're printing money. It's going to cause inflation. And sure enough, every lemming that watches these shitbird channels repeats the same shit. I mean, you have 274,000 views of a Petrodollar video. And you are one of the people that shared that shit around. You know why we're fucked. There's a mirror somewhere nearby you. Take a look at it sometime. If you're one of the people that did that, take a look. I love you. Please talk more about the Petri dollar. Worthless. All right. Sure, we know that spending isn't very sensitive to interest rates, but expectations are. And that's what matters. A rate hike will magically prevent inflation by creating the expectations that there will be no inflation. Believing that the Fed will prevent inflation will prevent inflation. As Peter Pan put it, all the world is made of faith and trust and pixie dust. After Greenspan's 1987 fiasco, the biggest stock market crash ever, as rates were quickly pushed up from about 6% to 7.5%. The Fed learned that a long series of small hikes is the best way to communicate intentions. Markets can gradually adjust to changed interest rate environments. Policy would change slowly. Once headed in one direction, the Fed would continue to move in that direction for many months. So the Fed continued to push rates up until it got the first Bush recession in 1990-1991. See, you see how this? Look at this. I want you to see this. Right there. Okay. Now I'm going to show you this for a reason. When you think about presidents. And you think about the fake independence of the Federal Reserve. That's a quasi-independent thing. There's nothing preventing Congress from taking action to force the Fed's hand. There may be some gentlemen's agreements, but the reality is they could easily make it legit and say, fuck you, you're going to do this. You know, they could institute price controls. Have you ever noticed that the only thing they ever want to do is lay you and I off? Yep. Those are real, real conversations to have with people. Those are the real ones. Okay. So let's get back to this. A housing and tech stock boom finally restored reasonable growth in the mid 1990s during Clinton's second term. Greenspan briefly fretted about irrational exuberance, but the Fed showed restraint, waiting until July 1999 to restart rate hikes. Now I want you to see this. Bush didn't take over until 2000, okay? Bush did not take over, shrub that is, okay, until 2000. He walked in the door with a Clinton era induced recession. Trash won't admit that, trash won't acknowledge that, but that's the reality jack, okay? So, with that in mind, I'm not going to show you this. I mean, you could see it clearly. You know, if you Expand that out. Here is 99, and you saw the dip, and it comes back up, and then all of a sudden, all the stuff that was done back here, because the things done here don't happen immediately. The things here don't happen immediately. What happens is they do these things, and then they finally hit later, and you see this is what was inherited. This is the inheritance. This recession right here is the inheritance of Bill Clinton's balanced budget, of the rate hikes, and all the other trash. Because what propped up the Clinton economy, interestingly enough, was a disruptive technology known as the internet. So keep that in mind. Oh, look, I didn't even read this. So here we go. Before long, the dot com bubble burst. <laughs> <laughs> and the economy was in recession in 2001. Another jobless recovery ensued. Y'all remember PSI Net? They used to sponsor raven Stadium in Baltimore. I do, because we used to sell stuff to them. They were an internet here, real quick commentary here. They were an internet company that had a bunch of, um, you know, piece parts. They weren't like a real full company. They had bought up a bunch of tiny little ISPs back in the day. You remember when there was all these ISPs, right? Well, they bought up all these ISPs. Some of them were nothing more than a bunch of modems tacked onto a wood board. Some of them were a bunch of servers sitting in someone's basement. Some of them were a big company. Some of them were a little tiny regional company, but it wasn't one company. And when PSI went down with most of the others, I mean, AOL, all those folks crashed and burned. Okay, And I was a sales guy back then. I was a senior engineer at Verizon. I used to be a guy that sold the the appliances that the internet was built on, all the Cisco router switches and all that hierarchical stuff in terms of like edge equipment. I used to do that. I used to go out there selling like tertiary uh, sands storage area networks, all kinds of stuff. It was cool, man. I was right there in the midst of the dot-com rise and the dot-com bust. I was in sales at the time, so it was pretty wild. I was flying all over the world, flying all over the country in particular, making sales, enjoying life, living La Vida Loco, man. Definitely a different time. So anyway, there's that little Grumbine moment. Let's get back to it. So in 2004, uh, let's go start back up here. Before long, the dot-com bubble burst and the economy was in recession in 2001. Another jobless recovery ensued. Continuing a familiar pattern, net, new financial bubbles emerged, this time in commodities, housing, and in equities, uh, helping the economy pick up steam. I want to say one more thing, too, uh, real quickly. Um, so one of the big things at the time, because I was in that environment, people were waking up one morning in, with Cisco stock, and the next day they were millionaires, paper millionaires. No joke. One day, they were buying MCI stock. Next day, they were millionaires. One day, they were buying dogwalker.com. They never had a single customer. They were buying shit left and right in freaking more fraud than you could ever imagine, okay? People were becoming paper millionaires overnight, and then suddenly the next day, they were fucking done. Very similar to the crypto shit, right? Very, very similar. Anyway, I digress. So in 2004, the Fed began a series of rate hikes that eventually culminated in the global financial crisis. Washington Mutual failed in September 2008, the biggest bank failure up to that point. Beginning to see a pattern? Sure hope so. Anyway, the rate hikes rippled through the financial system, driving mortgages underwater, pushing the economy into the most protracted economic downturn since the Great Depression. It took roughly seven years to claw back the jobs that were lost in the Great Recession. It was the ugliest recovery of all time. Okay. I want to take a moment here again and just say this. I lost my job at Verizon July twenty fourth 2009. I had just gotten my second master's degree. I first got a Master of Science in Technology Management in 2007. 2008, I got my master of business administration with a f- uh, focus on international uh, business. i just come back from China, had gone to Beijing, Shanghai, and a number of other places. I thought the world was going to be my oyster. Okay. I had done the work. I would take the red eye flights on all my trips. I would study the entire time. I would read thousands of pages in a week. I would write hundreds of papers I mean, hundreds of pages of papers. One night back in 2002, December 14th, 2002, I had a hundred page term paper sitting there on my computer. My computer blew up. Grumbine put away eight years of sobriety that night and got arrested. You name it. Horrible, horrible, horrible deal. But it was the beginning of the end for much of my life. So for the next several years, I had to live down that DWI I got that night. And I ended up literally trying to off myself. It was bad. So I know the pain and suffering that comes with these economic downturns and all the other pressure that's on people to try to make it in this shitty-ass world. Okay? So anyway, that said, let's keep going. Income inequality. Income inequality soared, and for the better part of a decade, the Federal Reserve waged battle against inflation rate that was considered too low. The whole world watched as the Fed and other central banks attempted to raise expectations of inflation to bring actual inflation up to the 2% target. But neither zero interest rate policy ZERP nor trillions of dollars of quantitative easing succeeded in restoring inflation to the Fed's target. Fed's policy was trumped by expectations that had converged to the new reality. There was no inflationary pressure, and no matter what the Fed did, it could not get markets on board with its magical thinking. Think about that. Inflation was caused by bullshit by gouging by the belief that we would have inflation and when they realized that it wasn't actually something mechanical like too much money too high interest rates whatever when they realized it wasn't real it was done by fucking greedy motherfuckers they didn't know what to do with themselves because all their little games they were playing weren't making an impact okay So gradually, markets adapted to persistently low interest rates. In this new environment, leverage made sense. Holding long-term assets made sense again. Financial markets bubbled, people got rich, regulations were relaxed. The Trump administration exempted medium-sized banks like SVB from stricter rules. Banking supervisors went to sleep. And then came a global pandemic. After about of outright deflation in 2020, inflation picked up, but expectations remained stubbornly low. Clearly, expectations were not driving inflation, even as the headline inflation rose well above two percent. Markets accepted Chairman Powell's view that it was a transitory annoyance. I want to ask you something. Let's stop for a second. When we talk about inflation, you realize that that means someone, let's say you and I are paying someone else more money. It doesn't necessarily mean that their costs went up. It doesn't necessarily mean that there were supply chain issues. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're printing money. It doesn't mean anything. It just means someone is paying someone else higher prices. And it's not just, inflation isn't just one thing. It's all rise. It's rise of all prices. Most of the time, we're not dealing with actual inflation. We're dealing with what they call a relative value story. But in this particular case, we're, we're now starting to talk about inflation because it's a persistent rise of all prices, okay? All right. So markets accepted Chairman Powell's view that it was transitory annoyance. One year ago, the FMOC, this is the federal open market, um, uh, this right here, okay, is very important to understand. One year ago, the FMOC still expected rates, interest rates, to be in the 2% range for 2023 with inflation in the 2 to 3% range, holding long maturity treasury bonds and mortgage-backed securities seem safe. What you think about this right here, long maturity treasury bonds, what does that mean? 30 years, 15 years, 10 years? Five years? More than three months? Yes. Mortgages always seem like a safe bet because people don't want to lose their homes. Unless, of course, the Fed is doing things in conjunction with uh, shady people in the industry, like Countrywide and others, committing massive amounts of fraud and stealing people's homes, right? Why waste money hedging interest rate risk? The Fed wasn't even bothering to stress test bank portfolios for losses due to rising interest rates. But inflation didn't go away. Financial markets were signaling that inflation expectations remained, as they say, well-anchored. But actual inflation wasn't responding in kind. Eventually, the Fed decided it was time to return to the old playbook. Quickly raise rates to show the Fed is serious about bringing down inflation. However, financial markets were highly leveraged and portfolios were built on perceived pact that the Fed would not destroy equity by over-tightening. Think about that real quick. They had grown used to the Fed not hiking interest rates, that interest rates had stayed low for so long that people, instead of buying hedge against rising interest rates, bought all these bonds to, to back up their, their banks, if you will, 30-year bank, 30-year notes, 15-year notes instead of three-month and stuff like that and variable interest rate, they bought fixed rate because they didn't think it was going to go up. Lo and behold, it did. I think you can easily look at the Fed for fucking this up. I think you can look at banks in a capitalist world. We live in a capitalist world. I hate it. I'm a socialist. I hate it. But in a capitalist world, you must know, banks, businesses, you name it, always are looking to raise the value, to raise their margins, to make sure they make more money, okay? So let's get back to it. <laughs> but that raised a problem. Banks that loaded up on safe government bonds, mortgage-backed securities had to either move them into the hold to maturity HTM category that or to recognize losses due to largely non-hedged positions and longer-term assets that could not be unloaded short sellers were able to pick out the banks with vulnerabilities and then start rumors that led to runs on uninsured deposits look at that these are the games the fuckers play so in the past week we've had a second svp and a third signature biggest bank failures up to this point. point first republic bank is being rescued by a consortium of 11 banks credit swiss is a basket case new bank failure records may be waiting in the wings Quick and decisive action by the Fed and FDIC can always avert calamity, but they failed to do so in the case of SVB. To prevent systemic crisis, FDIC insurance must be expanded to all bank deposits, regardless of size. We need to move quickly to find a system of FDIC-insured banks, not FDI-insured depositors. Unfortunately, we may find that insurance will have to be provided outside the commercial banking system, to deposit-like liabilities of shadow banks as we did for money market mutual funds at the great financial crisis. It could get ugly. It will be a bailout, no matter what the president says. We hope he sticks to his promise that shareholders and management will not be bailed out. We hope that he claws back bonuses and investigates the lax supervisors at the Fed. There's growing evidence that Chairman Pound and others at the top regulatory food chain are at least partly responsible for the lack of oversight that allowed banks like SVB to take on risk. Perhaps some early retirements and resignations are in order. So as we're going into the final dive here, they say, so what is to be done? We see two routes for long-term solutions. Continue to embrace the free market, reduce government-provided backstops, continue to rely on monetary policy for aggregate demand management, raise rates to fight inflation, and then lower them to ease the damage of recession, allow bank failures that rate hikes inevitably generate, learn to live with periodic financial crises, and expect a Great Depression every generation, which was the norm before the New Deal with its regulation of financial institutions and tremendous increase of the size of government. or. Stabilize interest rates, stop using them to demand management and instead focus on financial stability, regulate and supervise financial institutions, retain back backstops like deposit insurance and lender of last resort when necessary to stop crises from spreading and restore a proper role of fiscal policy and managing aggregate demand. OK, all right. So we're at the end. What I want to say is this. There is a push for FDIC to take over all. Deposits. Period. At all costs, no, no limit, no two hundred fifty thousand limit. Let me tell you why that might be different than what you think. Because I know most people just ah, blah, 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 right. As it stands now, many companies will have like three or four or five hundred bank accounts because they know that their account is only insured up to two hundred fifty thousand. Okay, so they will store all their money in a bazillion accounts. By lifting the FDIC rate from t- 250,000 to whatever, it then in turn stops that practice of insanity, of having a bazillion accounts. That may not seem like a big deal. Either way, these companies will always diversify their bank accounts, and this FDIC thing's not a thing anyway. But it also gives rise to the belief that private banks are the thing instead of recognizing that money comes from the federal government. Okay. Authority comes from the federal government. Okay. Anywho, one of the things that I also want to bring up before I close out of here is that while SVB is the topic in front of us most the right, you know, we got Credit Suisse coming up here. It's it's happened, but we'll have to break that down after we've had a chance to digest everything. But within this space, one of the things is very important to understand. Regulatory environment. We have a lot of terrible people in this world that want to have a small government. And by having a small government, because they don't understand this stuff, these regulatory bodies are choked out of existence. I think when I talked to Bill Black a while back, he said there was something like a 2,000 to 1, one auditor for 2,000 entities. Think about that. That's not possible to manage that. Okay, so when you create a regulatory body that can't actually support. Can't actually support. okay, Then I think it's important to understand that there's no question why it's going to fail. Warren Mosler said if you create a banking system, but then you don't create the teeth to support it in audit and regulatory environments, you shouldn't create it. Well, we created it and we killed the regulatory environment. We need that to change. The other thing is, and this is probably the more challenging thing, right? Personally, I think every single bank that fails should be nationalized on the spot. I think we should begin a, just like uh, BlackRock did with properties, I think the federal government should do with banks. I think the federal government should be buying up banks, anyone that's in failure, reclaiming it and turning it into a public bank, make it postal banking, whatever, okay? But if you listen to this past Saturday's Macaron Cheese with Roel Carrillo, you understand that there's a lot of stuff out there in the works to make banking, to cut the middleman out. In other words, banking may change radically in the near future. Now, mind you, you and I, we're not at the table. Most of us don't understand this stuff. So we're not there helping design new policy. We're not there helping design the, the look of the future. It's going to happen to us instead of include our voices in it. So I want you all to pay attention to what's going on out there. And I also want to make clear a couple things. The Silicon Valley bank no longer exists. It's going to be bought up. It's going to be changed. It's going to be whatever. What was being bailed out, if you will, was the depositors, the investors. Okay. Because that's the way it goes. In my mind, This is where you have to ask yourself, what do you want your financial institutions to do? Do you want it to breed wild instability? I don't want it to create winners and losers. I don't want it to allow these cheaters to win. And yet at the same time, though, we need to make banking very boring again. We need to literally make banking boring again. And if you don't understand this stuff, you're probably already bored and it probably didn't impact you the way it should. So I want you to think about this. Obviously, there's a lot more to talk about, but that was such a great, great article from the lens that I felt like it was important that we read that. Now, I wish that I could give you hot takes. I wish that I wasn't just known for screaming Rothschilds. But the reality is, is that somebody's got to be that guy in between. I know it's easy to run to some shitty YouTube channel where they say things very authoritatively, but ignorantly. I hope the God you resist that. I hope you resist patronizing them. I hope you resist listening to them. I hope you start learning enough so that you have an analysis when news hits that you're able to read it with a sharper eye and not depend on these shitty alt media, YouTube channels that talk about the petrodollar constantly. I really hope you grow up, develop an analysis and start training others or helping bring others into the fold. Don't just roll over when you see bad takes out there. Don't just roll over. It's too much work on my end. My, my heart can't take it anymore. I mean, I get like three or 400 views, and they'll get 270,000 views. I literally feel like I'm pissing into the ocean, not making a damn bit of difference. but I'm going to keep doing it because I, I can't imagine shutting up. I can't imagine turning off this channel, but I tell you what, there are days where I want to just burn it all down, walk away and never come back because I watch people that I know goddamn well know this stuff and they fucking go out there and listen to trash people that don't know economics. And I, I just, I, it just disgusts me. It literally disgusts me. So with that, I am Steve Grumban, I and The Rogue Scholar and I'm getting my ass back to work. Have a good day, everybody. I am out of here.